Today's message title uh, kind of fits this idea. It's called Grow Up. Would you look at your neighbor and say, Grow Up? <laughs> Grow Up! Like, I heard this word so many times from my brothers, from girls I was trying to date, from my parents. Grow Up! Right? To start today, I'm going to ask you some questions that really, honestly, I just shouldn't ask you. In fact, you should probably just never ask these questions to anybody. It's impolite. It puts pressure on the responder to know whether or not they should answer it. And there's some awkwardness that's involved in that. The first question being like, hey, how much do you weigh? Just go ahead and tell me. Like if, if you're younger than 17, these questions are okay to ask like kids for some reason. But like once you hit adulthood, it's like, no. You just don't ask somebody how old they are. Hey, uh, I noticed you just came out of the bathroom. Did you wash your hands? That's just not a question that you ask out loud, but maybe we should. I was in Boston Airport, and airports are just full of germs, right? Like everywhere, every hand seat, every, all the airplane tables and the things and everyone, people are wiping down and all this kind of stuff. And I see dudes into the bathroom and leave the bathroom and no washy the hands. I'm like, you ought to wear a sign that says, by the way, I did not wash my hands. Just so you know. Like, hey, thanks. That's great. Yeah. Uh, here's another question you shouldn't ask. Like, hey, um, when are you due? When am I doing what? I, 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 I thought you... <laughs> Don't ask. Right, here's another question that we all have to answer occasionally out loud when you're laying in the chair and the hygienist says... How often do you floss? And I say, I floss a lot the week leading up to this appointment. <laughs> Anyone else? Like, I don't ever floss, but that week before, he's like, let's get this going. Yeah, baby. Uh-huh. I'm just too busy to floss or lazy. Yeah, don't judge me. Uh, here's another question. Do you, do you watch any guilty pleasure shows? The Bachelorette? I did this because I'm imagining you wearing a sign just pronouncing to everyone. These are the shows that were Big Brother, Love Island. I got really quiet. Let's just show hands. How many people here? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Phil. Is Dr. Phil a guilty pleasure? Let's look at these train wrecks of lives and how Dr. Phil was going to solve Jerry Springer. I mean, he's no longer on TV, but come on. What in the world? Here's the last question I want to ask you. And it's a question that just makes the responder feel awkward to answer out loud. When is the last time that you personally made a disciple? What if we had a sign on our chest, like an LED sign that said, number of days since I last made a disciple? You personally, what would it say? How many days would it be there? Like, great, I get into church and now the pastor's beating up on me. Listen, Jesus' last words to us in Matthew chapter 28, right? You open the Bible, you don't have to turn there now. But his last words in Matthew 28 are basically this. Hey, I just defeated sin and death when I rose from the grave, right? And now all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. So I am the head guy. That's not what he's saying, but that's what he's saying. And now with all of that authority, I want to give you a command. 
a commissioning to each and every one of you followers who are standing in front of me, to anyone who hears my voice or will read these words for the rest of time, he says to the, those people, to us, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And these are kind of the last words, but not the last words, because the last, last words you find in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus is standing again in front of a bunch of followers of himself, and he says these last words, and then he literally up and vanishes up into the clouds, right in front of their eyes. Last words. He says, hey, all of you, go and be my witness in Jerusalem, your hometown, in Judea, your nation, and in Samaria, the nation of your enemies and to the ends of the earth. Go and be my witnesses. And what do witnesses do? Think about it in a courtroom. They testify. Go and testify about what I have done in your life. The love that you have experienced in my presence, the life change, the freedom from bondage. Go and tell others. Go tell it on the mountain, right? This is Jesus' last words to us. Go and make disciples. Go and testify about who I am. And the question that rises for all of us is one of those awkward questions, but we all have to answer it. Like, when is the last time that I actually obeyed Jesus in this area? To go and do what he did, forsaking everything, the comfort, all of that, because I love enough to go and serve people that do not yet know Jesus until they know him and live with him, for him? Are you personally making any disciples one-on-one? That's how it happens. That's how you reach the world is one person at a time. You know, the reason that most people don't make disciples is the same reason that you probably don't make fugu puffer fish for dinner. You got to really slow down when you say that. (laughs) Fugu puffer dish. Anyone ever made fugu puffer fish for dinner? The reason you haven't is because many chefs, I researched this because that's what I do. uh, This is the hardest dish in the world to make because a fugu puffer fish happens to have toxic innards. They are 1,000 times more toxic than cyanide. So if you make the fugu puffer fish wrong, you kill people. Even if you're like making it and you handle it wrong. Like, oh, I got some in my eye. Like, right? I don't don't know what happens. But it's probably not good. But it's a delicacy. And it tastes delicious. And so people go through the painstaking process to remove that which is toxic, to cook the fish properly, and to serve it to those daring enough to eat fugu puffer fish. (laughs) You try to say it. It's hard. (laughs) Fugu puffer fish. Yep. I don't make this dish and I don't eat a lot of fish, probably because I think it's all poison. But I don't make it because I don't know how, right? I mean, it's just that simple. It's too hard. It's too risky. Now, let's make it a little easier. And some of you may do this, but most don't. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but you at home make homemade pizza? 
And when I say that, I don't mean that you take a pita or a pre-made crust, a cauliflower crust, and then you put stuff on it and stick it in the oven. I'm talking about from scratch, mix the yeast, the proper amount of water, it's special pizza dough, you get it to do just what it's supposed to do, then you flip it, roll it, and you toss it and do all that kind of stuff, and then you have the crust. The rest of it's easy. And then you put it in the oven, and it doesn't cook it like a pizza oven. It's just kind of not the same. But some of you do this, the rest of us that don't do this, we go to Blaze. I just made your lunch plans, by the way. Blaze. Have you been to Blaze? It's like Subway, but for pizzas. It makes you feel like you're actually making the pizza, but really you're just watching and enjoying the results, right? And that's just like the American church today. Hello. We come to church, myself included. We go to these events. We're all inspired. We go to these concerts, whatever. We watch what's happening on stage and we enjoy the results, but we had nothing to do with making the pizza, making the fugu puffer fish, to making the disciples. And because of it, we're missing the joy that Jesus gave us when he said, go and make disciples. It was less a command and more an invitation. Man, when you help somebody else, Run free from bondage and slavery to find freedom and forgiveness and find purpose and identity and destiny. You get to be a part of doing that. Come with me. Woo. Go and make disciples. Hmm. So uh, Christine said this a little bit last week. She's still up in Boston with Owen. She flies home this afternoon if the airplanes actually work. I was supposed to land at 5 on Friday and landed at 1.30 in the morning. So... Praise God. Hallelujah. Uh, it was weather's fault. It wasn't people's fault. So anyway, she's still up there. But last week she said, it's time for us to stop ordering from Blaze. It's time for us to stop ordering from the experts and ourselves become familiar with the making of disciples. It's not left to just a chosen few like Billy Graham or the Pope or Stephen Furtick or Craig Rochelle or Robert Morris. It's left to every person because when Jesus was speaking the Great Commission, he wasn't speaking to experts. He was speaking to people just like us. Followers whose lives have been turned upside down for the good because of the love and power of Jesus Christ. And I am compelled from that love to help other people find that love. Love God. Love people. Love God. Love people. Amen? Amen. So last week, uh, but let me just say this. I've said this before here, but just to be clear, and I'm not trying to pile on. I'm trying to invite us to a higher place in the church to not be consumers, but partakers in the mission of the church. I've said this before, but Christians are those who put their faith in Jesus. Disciples are those who actually do what Jesus said. And Jesus said, go and make disciples. Jesus said, go and be my witnesses. And the church, through the evangelism explosion, early 60s, on through the 70s, Azusa Street, the revivals that all happened, there was a great thing happening where people were being converted from a life without Jesus to a life of faith, but then we left millions of babies on the doorstep. We had a lot of converts, a lot of Christians, but very few disciples, to the extent that you go to churches in America today and you see all of these red, empty things. Where have the people gone? Because in the 70s, the 80s, when I was growing up, 
You went to church and everything else didn't exist on Sunday. And now church is one of 6,000 options in a five mile radius. Right? Hmm. What's happened? Last week, Christine laid out the ingredients for this idea of following the recipe, that there is a way to make disciples. There is practical steps that we can do in our lives that help people grow in the faith, right? To make disciples. Here we go. These are the four things she said. Number one, these are the four things we say to Illuminate Church all the time. We first meet God. Everyone say, meet God. Move. Is it up there? There you go. Meet God. This happens first in salvation where you enter into a relationship with Jesus and become one with him through the faith. God restores you into perfect unity with the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. We say yes to the invitation of salvation. And then we consequently keep meeting with God. You're doing that right now. You're in this first place of meeting God. You're in his counsel, under the counsel of the word, in his presence. After that, as a result of meeting with him, a couple things happen. Number one, we begin to discover who we are in Christ, meaning identity. With identity comes purpose. With identity comes destiny. This is who I am. I'm not who the world says I am. I'm not this failure, this reject, whatever. I'm not this abject person. of this. I'm not that. I am a son of God. I am a prince, an heir to the throne, a daughter, an heir to the throne. Royalty clothed in majesty, we begin to discover that. And also, as we discover who we are in Christ, we become more like Jesus. And you've heard us say this at church before. I'll say it again. What should the body of Christ be doing? We should be doing what Christ did in his body. And when you start doing what Jesus did while he was on the earth, you become like Jesus. And that happens as you meet with God. And the more and more that you meet with God and discover your identity and become like Jesus, the more your love, your heart expands until you take this final step of maturity, which is to lead others to do the same. I found the cure. Come this way. This is the escape hatch, the fire chute, whatever. I found the way. Follow me now. And we'll both go that way together. It turns out that discipleship is a revolving progression. This is a flywheel. We don't meet with God, check it off the list, and move to the next, and check that off and move. And then when we're done, we're just down here. We're constantly in this flywheel of meeting with God, discovering who we are in Christ, becoming more like Jesus, and leading others to do the same all along the way. And so really, I just have one thing I want to tell you today. One practical step, or maybe it's a concept that we would all get together as a church and lead us to where Jesus asked us to be. And it's this simple idea that physical and spiritual maturity are not congruent. If you remember this word from geometry in 10th grade, congruent, meaning that they just go together, right? Up or this way, whichever way. Uh, Spiritually, acne... Praise God for zits, right? You ever heard that from a platform before? Yeah, you just did. Acne, hair under your armpits, your voice lowering, that does not happen automatically spiritually as it does physically. Like you didn't do anything to make those things start happening. It just started happening by the design of God. Are you following me? 
So physical maturity happens naturally, but spiritual maturity happens proactively. It happens by a willful decision of each person to say, I want to grow in my faith. I want to mature in the ways that I've been living and growing and thinking. Some of you may be familiar with the the book, or you can call it a letter. Some people call it an epistle uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament, called 1 Corinthians. It's written by the Apostle Paul. If you're not familiar with the term apostle, it just means church planner. God specially called Paul to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the non-Israelites, and preach to them the good news of Jesus. To help them understand the power of Jesus and his salvation. And Paul did that. He went on these missionary journeys up and around the Mediterranean from from Israel. And he, he ends up in this place called Corinth. And he's planting churches there. And thousands of people are being saved. Their ears, their spirits, their souls come alive when they hear Paul speaking to them and they just understand it and the altar is full. They didn't have altars, but they're, they're praying and, and receiving Jesus as Savior, an amazing move. And Paul moves on and plants other churches in Ephesus and Thessalonica and Rome eventually. You've, you've probably familiar with all this. But the people in Corinth, as they do in these other places, they write to Paul with questions. Hey, Paul, you came here and all of us started believing, a lot of us, not all of us, and that's awesome, it's great, but now we're not sure what to do. We're running into some issues and we don't know how to handle them. We have inappropriate relationships in families, right? I won't use the terminology, but you understand. We, we don't know how to handle the Lord's Last Supper meal, communion. We have infighting in our leadership. What about marriage? What about money? We we don't know what to do about all this. And so Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, back to them. And he even says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21, he's like, listen, when I was with you, you were only ready for milk. You're brand new babies. In the faith, you may be 55 years old, but you're a baby, spiritually speaking, and all you could handle then was milk. So now I'm going to give you meat. And he begins to write this letter in 1 Corinthians. And he addresses all of these issues and more than even I'm sharing here. You go read the book of 1 Corinthians. It's all about them growing up from being babies to becoming spiritually adults. Are you following me, church? Yes? Yes? Are you still here? Excellent. And he gets to this pinnacle of maturity. You might be familiar with this pinnacle of maturity. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you want to open your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the love chapter. Mm -hmm. The wedding chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love shares the remote. Love puts the toilet seat down. You familiar, you familiar with this? I might have just made up a bit. Mm-hmm. I share this scripture at every wedding that I perform. You're like, man, that's so cliche. And I say, man, it is the highest form of maturity. The goal for every marriage, not just for every marriage, but for every person living is this right here. Paul says uh, just before this, he's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he's talking about spiritual gifts. It's another sign of maturity. 
that the Holy Spirit given to every believer is unleashed in a person with these gifts, the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, healing, you name it. It's all in there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But the key is the mark of identity, excuse me, maturity, is that I use my gifts not for myself so that I feel good and I look good and whatever. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, these gifts are for the common good. So the mature believer understands this is no longer about me, but it's about everyone else. For I am to love God and to love people. I love God so much that I love what he loves and he loves people. And I want to care for people. And this is a sign of maturity, but at the very end, it wasn't 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, where he says uh, it's for the coming. That's early in 12. Verse 31 actually says this. Now, all of this is great signs of maturity, but now let me show you the most excellent way, the highest form of maturity. And here's what he says. You might have heard this before. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, well, Paul is writing, but Jesus is speaking. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Just pausing here. If I have all these gifts from God and I'm using them, but I don't love people, if I don't love God, it's completely wasteful. Woo! If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I have nothing. If I see miracles but don't have love, I have nothing. That's what he's saying here. Like, really? Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship so that I may boast but don't have love, I've got nothing. Nothing. And then these famous words, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. I love that. Thank you, Jesus. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Verse 8, love never, ever, ever fails. But where there are prophecies, those will stop. Where there are tongues, those will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, that passes away. For now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, maturity, what is in part disappears. If you've got a Bible and you like to use your pen on your Bible, just start underlining verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. I'm done being a child. Hmm. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, say the word, yeah, when you get to heaven, you don't have faith or hope anymore because God is right there. I don't have to faithfully think, is he there? He's there. I don't have to hope for him. He's there. So all that's left is love, sweet love. It's all about maturity. 
It's all about growing up in the faith and putting on Christ, putting on love. Paul says it clearly here. Verse 11, let's look again at this verse. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. By the way, the difference between thinking and reasoning, thinking is like your worldview, the way that you process things. Reasoning is the way you make decisions. Logic, those kind of things. Thinking and reasoning are different. So Paul says, when I became a man, I put all that stuff, talking, thinking, and reasoning like a child behind me. So today what we get to do is take a look in the mirror and say, God, is there anywhere in my life, I may be 50, you may be 30, you may be 17, I don't know how old you are. Is there anywhere in my spiritual life where I'm still thinking, talking, and reasoning like a spiritual baby? And God said, I want to grow you today. I want you to grow up today into all things Christ, who is the head. And as we mature, what happens is we unify because we all start speaking the same, looking the same. And I don't mean physically, but we start moving as one in the pattern of Jesus Christ. Is there any area of your life where you could stand some growing up in your faith? Specifically, and I'll come back to this at the end, when it comes to making disciples. Is there an area where you could grow up and say, you know what, I I don't make disciples. Well, it's not too late. You're still breathing. You're here on the earth You have relationships. Is it that area? But I have some other areas I just want to share to get your mind thinking. And they're not random areas. They're areas that are very personal to me that through my life I realize, oh my gosh, I'm still acting like a baby. I'm 30. I'm 40. I'll be 50 next year. I'm I'm a baby still. I got to grow up here, right? Am I the only one? Okay. Okay, good. Here's the first one. The exchange of wills. Has this happened in your life? I became a Christian at age 13 in 1987, but the exchange of wills didn't happen to nearly eight, nine years later. I went to the University of Florida, and I met men, I've said this before, my age, but they were spiritually giants compared to me. They were adults, and I was a baby in diapers still. I'm 18, 19, 20, 21 years old at this point. And what I learned by watching their lives is that there's three wills on the earth. The will of the devil, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, right? That's his will. He wants to usurp God, become God, and destroy anything and everything else that would stand opposed to him. Then there is my will, which is my selfish desires, my own motives, my limited way of thinking, right? It's influenced by the enemy, but sometimes we blame the devil for things that it's just me. Like, it's just my bad choice, right? And then there's the will of the Lord, which the Bible says is perfect, good, and pleasing. His will is perfect. His will is good. His will is pleasing. And we get the opportunity on the daily to choose which will we will follow. These guys at the University of Florida, they had exchanged their will, the will of the devil, for the will of the Lord. They were living For Jesus. When they prayed, it sounded like they were in the counsel of God. When they opened the scriptures, they were familiar and understood the passages. And I'm their same age thinking, what's wrong with me? Where have I been my whole life? I grew up in the church every Sunday. Hmm. I was a baby. And then I learned, just like Target or Walmart or Publix, There's one place you make exchanges, 
Like you don't go to the baby section and try to exchange your can of green beans, right? You go to the customer service desk. Are you following me? It's the same way in Christianity. There's one place where we make this exchange. It's the place of prayer. Prayer at its root is an exchange of wills where I lay down my will and take on the will of the Father, which, by the way, is a fantastic choice for any person. It's why Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come on the earth. Your will be done on the earth. And really, it's in the earth because we are made from dust, from the dirt, right? We were, may your will be done in me as it is in heaven. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus himself says, not my will in prayer, but your will be done. It's an exchange of wills. I'm going to live for you. This is no longer Tim Ingram's life. This life is yielded over to the Father, which is great benefit to Tim Ingram and to the kingdom. Exchange of wills. The second one is this. Grew up one day when I learned there's a difference between tithing and tipping. This is a huge lordship issue. Am I really submitted to God? Do I really trust him? I was in church, like I said, all my life. But in 1995, when I graduated college, I became a youth pastor serving at a church in Slocala, Florida. And uh, I was still tipping God. Meaning if I had a good week with the Lord, felt connected to him, saw his work in my life, you know what, God? You're worth 20 bucks this week. Boom. Mr. Big Spender. And that's when they were passing the plates, you know? And everyone, like, oh, there's a lot of pressure here. I better, like, throw something in. Or just pass it really quick, right? So I put in 20 bucks. It was a bad week, maybe nothing. Like, I'm angry at you. I'm feeling stingy. I suddenly have alligator arms. But you know the, the whole deal. It had nothing in my mind to do with what the scriptures actually teach. Malachi chapter 3, go read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, go read them. And God teaches us that giving is an act of faithfulness. It's an act of lordship. I was uh, introduced to this young lady who knew what it meant to tithe. And uh, so I married her. And she taught me how to tithe. And I've told this story before, but uh, when Christine came to Ocala, when we got married, she could not find a job. She had a degree from the University of Florida in physical therapy, like, and couldn't find a job. So we get to the end of a month and it's time to pay the rent. And she says, it's time for us to start tithing. I'm like, we can't tithe and pay the rent. We pay, prayed, we paid the tithe on a Sunday, the very next day, Monday, she got two full-time job offers. Two days later on a Wednesday, our landlord, who had no idea about any of this, called and said, hey, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you not to pay your rent this month. I don't need any more convincing for the rest of my life that tithing is a test, just as Jesus says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Test me in this and see if I will not open up the storehouses when you're giving out of faith, not out of like, hey, God, I'm giving this, so you better... <laughs> and by the way, it's not giving, it's returning because the tithe belongs to God. He gives it to you as a sign, as a test of faith. Like, hey, here's this extra 10%. Are you going to return it to me to show that you truly believe that I am your provider? 
I had to learn that. I had to grow up. I was a baby. I was tipping. Baby, 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 in my diapers. And the Lord says, time to grow up. That was 24 years ago this September. We've never looked back, Christine and I. Because God has proved his faithfulness just as he said he would. The third was the American dream versus the kingdom dream. This is particular to us that live in the United States of America because it is clear that there's an American dream that has everything to do with success as defined by the United States of America. Which means big money, big comforts, fame, popularity, you name it. And somewhere along, and I'm going to show you how much of a baby I was. I'm just going to like wear my diaper right here in front of you. I had this thought in my early 20s, even in the student ministry years, like, hey, this is my literal thought. If I keep following Jesus down this road, I can't go to Las Vegas. That was my thought. Like, I can't go there and participate in the debauchery that's there in Las Vegas, if I say I'm a Christ follower and because I was a baby, I was sad about that. Like it, if I went to Las Vegas and sat myself down at a blackjack table and had a cocktail sitting next to me there and some of my youth pastor kids, students, like the kids in my student ministry, their parents, I'm not saying that right, but the parents of the students came walking by the table and like, isn't that our youth pastor? Like, is it a sin to play blackjack? I don't know. Is it a sin to drink? Definitely not. Is it a sin to get drunk? Absolutely, just to be clear. But when somebody walks by and sees me sitting there, it gives off this certain idea like, I, does he really believe what he says he believes? And I had to make this decision if I was going to walk that road or walk another road. You know, when you go to Las Vegas, you see lots of things. Christine and I went with my parents one time. We saw some shows. We saw O. Anyone ever see O? Amazing show. We saw the Grand Canyon in a helicopter. It was incredible, right? But mostly what we saw in Las Vegas was demons. You feel them. There's a heaviness when you land on the tarmac. There's a heaviness on the streets as you walk around. I'm like, I am so glad that I chose Jesus. Because this way is just bondage and brokenness. Can I step out on my message for a second and tell you something? I just said the wrong part of the wrong thing. <laughs> like everything I just said goes with the next title. So can you just move to the next title? Which is this. Faith is more satisfying than fun. I had to grow up and learn that. And everything I just said goes with that. Do you still love me? I had COVID, I just dropped my kid off of college, I get a pass, is that okay, are we graceful? Good. Everything I just said was this, right? Faith is more satisfying than fun. I'll go back to the American dream and the kingdom dream in a second. <laughs> Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for you will be satisfied. Everything else the world offers you will leave you unsatisfied. You will be insatiable, constantly needing to eat more and more and more and more. It's the way sugar works, by the way. It makes you want more sugar. Never satisfied. Faith is more satisfying than fun. Oh, and here's another one. The American dream versus the kingdom dream. Everyone go, oh, amazing. Yeah. 
I had to grow up here too because there was a time in my life when I'm a youth pastor making like $32,000 a year. I got some kids. My wife's in physical therapy, but she only works part-time because we have kids. And uh, she's the other time working at home. And uh, we just didn't have a lot of money. Like we weren't destitute, but there was never extra to do anything. And so I decided to pursue the American dream while pursuing the kingdom dream. This is me personally. And we decided, hey, we're terrible with tools, drills, hammers, screwdrivers, and the like. So why don't we flip houses? (laughs) Is, Is that your laugh? Who's laugh? That's the greatest laugh I've ever heard. It was great. Um, so we did. You know, we bought one house. It was a disaster. Thankfully, another flipper came to us and said, I'll buy it from you. And we made like 3000 bucks. I'm like, this is awesome. This is great. We bought another house. It had major structural issues that I didn't know. And so we get in and we're like, we're toast. Like, I don't know how to fix this. Another flipper came, knocked on the door and said, I'll buy it from you. We made like another $4,000. We're like, we're loaded. We're so rich now. Look at us. Let's buy another one. We bought the third house. We spent the next six months fixing this house, putting every single penny that we had in savings and then what wasn't in savings into this house. We were over there almost every night, on the weekends, no Sabbath, no rest, no family time. We're spending all this time at this rinky-dink house. We finally sold it to this family, and we're at the closing table, and they slide the documents like, hey, after everything, this is your net proceeds. Shook. Six months of our lives, $1,100. Christine and I walked out of the closing, sat in the car, and we boohooed. Just like, and sitting in the car, I can still feel it to this day. The Lord said to me, gently, speaks the truth in love. You have forsaken your family and your ministry to pursue a dream that is not my dream. And sitting there in the car, you make a good inner vow like, Lord, I'm just going to do the kingdom dream from now on. I'm just going to serve you with everything that I have. I'm going to serve my family. No more distractions going there trying to get the American success story so I can have a better vacation or a better car or a better whatever. I'm just going to do this. And I'm going to tell you, God has provided all of those other things by his own hand in his own ways because we committed to the kingdom dream as opposed to the American dream. I'm not trying to say the American dream is bad. It's only bad if it becomes an idol and usurps the things that God wants to do in your life. Becomes the dream instead of expanding the kingdom. You've heard this, Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and everything else will be given to you. And you know what? I'm living proof that it is true. 100% true. Here's the last one. Making fans or making disciples. It's kind of the message really of, that I want to focus on today, but I just wanted to show you some other areas that we can grow up in. But this is certainly an, era, an area that the American church needs to grow up in. 
We need to move out of the diapers. We need to move past milk into meat when it comes to making disciples. When I became a student pastor, even before that, when I was leading Campus Crusade for Christ at University of Florida, I was so convinced that I wanted people to become addicted to Jesus that I did everything that I could. But what ended up happening is I made people addicted to entertainment and programs and the wow and the lights and the show. And so everyone became uh, observers of what we were doing at crew and what we were doing in student ministry. Like kids were addicted to youth ministry and not Jesus. And the way that I knew that is when they left our student ministry and went to college, they didn't take Jesus with them. They went looking for the next show at a fraternity, at a bar, in a bed. Like, wait, what's happening here? We didn't make disciples, we made Christians. We made a lot of converts who were totally still drinking milk. And at some point, you realize as a steward of what God has given you, like, that is not good. I mean, it's not terrible. It's just incomplete. These kids are saved. I believe that they're saved by the hand of God. That's good news, but they're not growing in the faith. They didn't become disciples, making disciples by following a recipe of meeting God, discovering who we are in Christ, becoming more like Jesus, leading others to do the same. Making disciples ends up being next level stuff. It ends up being a step of maturity for all of us to realize, hey, it's not about the show. It's not about entertainment. It's not about even feeling good for ourselves. It's about loving God and loving others enough to go and make disciples, to testify to them about what Jesus has been doing in your life. There's a man named Jadev Peyeng. I may be saying his name incorrectly. He's an Indian man. He lives over in that area, Indonesia, India. I'm not exactly sure where he lives. But in 1969, he's walking through this barren wasteland that is his hometown. There's no trees. There's no foliage. There's no shade. And he sees snakes on the ground, and they're burning up in the sun. He's he's seeing them shrivel up in the sun. And he's this young kid and he thinks to himself, if this is happening to the snakes now, what will happen to me and our people as the foliage continues to die and go away? He's like, we're next. We're going to burn up in the sun. So in 1969, this young boy goes to the elders of his village and says, I want to plant trees. By the way, this is what it looked like back then. It's a bad picture because it's from so long ago. It's hard to see. But this is his home land. He says, I'm going to plant a tree a day. And he begins to plant a tree a day. To this day, this guy's still alive. He's still planting a tree a day. His forest, now it's named after him, is twice the size of Central Park. And it looks, this is, this is him in a picture. That's him to the right. That's that same land. It's obviously the, the, the perspective is different. One was from the mountains looking out of the beach. Now this is looking back this way. Saying, you can go look this up, Jadev Payang. He's been all over the news lately. One tree a day, planting it, fertilizing, caring, loving. And now he has this place. There's a thousand elephant, elephants that live in his deer, all sorts of wildlife that were not there until he planted the tree a day. Bob Spraker will remember this name. Maybe you too, Kim. There's a man in Tampa. His name is Earl Smith. Bob came from Tampa with me. Or I came, you came here first. I followed you, bro. 
He was on staff with us at the Crossing Church. He's still alive. He's nearing 100 years old. But he had a motto. His motto was, one a day in Tampa Bay. And he would do anything that he could to meet somebody, to walk with somebody, to have a relationship with somebody so that they could know the saving power of Jesus Christ. And then he would try to connect them to a life-changing place where they made disciples. It wasn't just about the converts and like, good luck. I'm glad you got saved. Go figure it out on your own. One a day in Tampa Bay. Earl Smith in his 90s still doing this. Pray for Earl. He fell. He's in the hospital. His hip and his face took a, a beating. Uh, but incredibly beautiful man, gentle of heart funny. Call him Earl the Pearl. And he would say, no, I'm Earl the Squirrel. That's what he would say. <laughs> One a day in Tampa Bay. And he always challenged me when I was around him because I think, man, I'm like one a decade in Tampa Bay. You understand what I'm saying? He's one a day and I'm making disciples at the rate of one a decade. I'm just making up a number. I don't even know what it is, but I would do it corporately. I would make disciples from platform. I would make disciples at classes, whatever the case may be. But in this last season, the Lord has changed the hearts of the leadership here, our staff, our elders, and subsequently the church, where we are a church that loves enough God and people to actually start making disciples, to go and make disciples. All I'm trying to convince you of today is that it's time to grow to a place where you recognize that church isn't just for you, right? It's about Jesus. It's about reaching others for Jesus. So I'm just really briefly gonna give you some marching orders and they're identical to what I said in advance. So if you were there, this redundancy is just to remind you if you weren't there, here's part of what we said. Number one, get involved in community. If you wanna make disciples, get involved in community. I lead a D group. I see a couple of my D group brothers right here, right now. We meet together and iron sharpens iron. We're making disciples around us, but we intend, it's happening now in this season to replicate so that each of us now, instead of just the five of us, there'll be 25 of us making disciples intentionally, taking time. It takes, uh, it takes time every week to prepare. It takes time every week to read and to share. It takes time, but it's the most important investment, knee to knee, making disciples Today, as you leave service, Dakota and a bunch of our D group leaders, Alyssa, you're here too. Uh, Dakota leads the men's groups. Wave Dakota so people know who you are. Stand up Dakota so people can see who you are. Alyssa, would you stand too? The, Dakota leads our men's D groups. Alyssa leads our le le uh, female D groups, women's D groups. But if you have any questions, want any information, they're gonna be outside to talk to you about D groups. You can also show some interest in a QR code that we're gonna put up here in a second. The other thing that I wanna tell you is get involved in a, on the dream team. The dream team are the people here at Illuminate Church who have decided I wanna help make disciples. I'm personally gonna go out and make disciples, but I'm also corporately gonna help make disciples right here in our community, right here in this church and around the world. Did you know we got a trip to Nicaragua coming up? Uh, is it Nicaragua? I'm saying the wrong, is it Nicaragua? Dominican Republic, yes, I knew it was wrong when I said Nicaragua. We just got back from Nicaragua. The next trip is to the Dominican Republic in November. You can go on that trip. If you're interested in anything Dream Team, to serve here, to serve in the community, to serve around the world, if you're interested in getting into community in a D group, making a commitment to attend church faithfully, then this QR code is all you need. 
Is it up there? Yes. Just aim your camera at that. It'll download a form to you and you can make some commitments there. But what really happens is people on our staff will reach out to you and help you connect. Now, church, you cannot grow up spiritually without being proactive. So if you sit and do nothing, nothing's going to change. The diapers remain. But if you proactively take a step and say, I'm going to get in community. I'm going to get on the dream team. I'm going to start making disciples at my workplace, in my family, in my sphere of friends. I'm going to make disciples. It takes proactivity. And I'm going to tell you when it really changed for me, when everything kind of clicked that my life was for Jesus, I was at the University of Florida. I was out with these men, my same age, but I considered them men. And we were walking around the campus looking to evangelize people just random girl sitting on a bench. We go sit with her and start just having conversation, trying to lead them to Jesus. And listen, every time we did this, I felt so terrified just to walk around campus and be like, hi, uh, you want to know Jesus? It just, it, it felt awkward to me, right? But every time I would have the same thought, and, and this is for me, maybe it's for you. I don't want you to take my words from God to be your words, but it could be for you. I would look at that person and be scared. Be like, this is gonna be awkward. I'm just about to walk up to a total stranger and just start talking about Jesus. And the Lord would say to me, every time, I'm not kidding, This every time I had this conversation, do you love them more than you love you? Or do you love you more than you love them? Because it's your fear, your love of yourself, your comfort that's making you not want to do the loving thing and go tell them, testify to them about who I am. And I had to decide standing there, this person doesn't even know I'm coming to visit them yet. Like, Lord, I love this person more than I love myself. This person is worth it. You love this person so much that you sent your son and Jesus like, no, actually right now I'm sending you to go and love them. Do you love those people more than yourself to go and make disciples? That's the question. That's the step of maturity. Love God, love people. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you have given us everything. Life, forgiveness, redemption, the power of your blood, the goodness of your faithfulness, your grace and mercy. We, we know nothing like it. And Lord, we hear today that our response to your love is yes, to love you back, but also to do something. And you said what to do. Go and make disciples. Testify to the world of who I am. And so Lord, call us up. Call your church higher. Anoint your people. Commission your people. Put the weight of the gospel on our shoulders so that as we leave this place, we know we have a job to do, a calling on our lives to go out to a lost and hurting world. Lord, we see it now. We're in a post-Christian nation. We are missionaries in our own hometowns. So Father, I pray that you would change our hearts, change our perspectives, break our hearts for what breaks yours. We pray it and agree to it together. In Jesus' mighty name, everyone say, 
Amen. Amen.